I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And it, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume, I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. Cause see, I'm a comic who became an actor. So I'm cheap, like, you know, back in the day, like you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. Necessity is about reaching the minimum, while curiosity is about reaching the maximum. When you think of the definition of a polymath, it harkens back to the days of the Stoics, the Age of Enlightenment, the Renaissance, or perhaps 19th and 20th century intellectuals. Leonardo was the very definition of a polymath Renaissance man. In addition to being a visionary painter, he was an engineer, anatomist, and chronicler of science. A polymath is a person of encyclopedic learning, a rounded approach to education. Historically, you think of Benjamin Franklin, who studied electricity, oceanography, cryptography, political science, social sciences, and physiology. Or you think of da Vinci, who may as well be the photo beside the phrase, the Renaissance man. Not only was da Vinci a renowned painter, he was an engineer, city planner, cartographer, and scientist. Now, we recently did an episode on the student loan crisis, and it really hit home with our audience, because 44 million Americans owe more than $1.6 trillion of student loan debt. In today's educational industrial complex, specialization is deemed rewardable. Yet there's never been a greater disparity between higher education and its returns on investment. In fact, many of the best leaders across digital industries are generalists. If you really dig into the experiences of some of the most transformative leaders today, you'll find that many of them shunned specialization. Rather, they pursued a dedication to curiosity across broad subjects. And at some point in their continued education, their broad knowledge prepared them for a moment of inflection that defined their careers. John Lowe is one of the first people that I thought of. A longtime friend and mentor, Lowe is an executive member of 2PM and chief executive at Jenny's Ice Creams. He's put his encyclopedic learning to use over his 10 years as CEO. With the help of the company's iconic founder, he steered a small Midwestern ice cream company to the Inc. 5000 list. Founded in 2002 by Jenny Britton Bauer, the James Beard Award-winning author, entrepreneur, and maker literally set a new standard for ice cream. With $12 pints and an omnichannel approach to sales that was unheard of for a time, Lowe and Bauer steered Jenny's to and through growing pains, quite a bit of adversity, and a private equity round in 2016. With nearly 500 employees, 38 stores, distribution within 3,000 grocery shops, and B Corp status, Jenny's is a household name, far from the company that he incorporated for just $15 in goods. But behind the great Jenny is Lowe. From the south side of Chicago, to a political science degree at the University of Illinois, to a law degree at Ohio State University, as a labor and employment attorney, he helped to incorporate Jenny's in exchange for a pint of ice cream and a beer. He left the prestigious law firm Kegler, Brown, Hill, and Ritter to be general counsel at General Electric. Just seven years later, the husband and father of three would become the company's CEO for presumably more than a pint of ice cream and an IPA. Polymathic is the audio component of a special community of industry leaders just like John Lowe. Today, we discuss the education, influences, and curiosities that helped the Chicagoan grow the Michael Jordan of ice cream alongside a founder that is the embodiment of the brand that she built.
hold on. I, we can't get started. Did you just start with Benjamin Franklin, <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci, and then John Lowe? Are you kidding me? I did. I, I, I have on. that much respect for you and what you've built. You, that, that cannot be true. Well, so to be, to be fair, that's sort of the issue at hand. Obviously, when you think of the word polymathic, you think of history's top five greats. I, I couldn't find a whole lot about Benjamin Franklin's diplomacy, so I was studying that. And then the more I studied him, he was like a media mogul. I mean, he, he had a great printing empire, a newspaper empire. He developed the American Postal Service in order to have a distribution system. And everything about him, he was the last great Renaissance person who did everything. I believe there are a lot of notable individuals today that fit that mold and that are doing wonderful things with the breadth of education and influence. Um, and you happen to be one of them. And I want to help people to recognize that there are more people capable of that type of uh, understanding um, and wide knowledge. Um, and uh, that's why I called you for spot number one, the, well, man, the man, the myth, the legend. That's very flattering. <clears throat> Flattery will get you everywhere. Thank you. I don't think it's warranted, but thank you. You are the very first podcast I've said yes to. I It means the world to me. Uh, listen, I don't do this very often. I don't like to be on podcasts. I certainly am learning to feel comfortable recording them. So I appreciate you for bearing with me and uh, let's jump right in. Um, okay. So long story short, um, uh, We've talked about your background quite a bit over the years. We, you know, we've we've worked together in some capacity. You've advised me in the direct to consumer space. You are mastering the direct to consumer space right now. Um, tell I me about your time at Jenny's and what you feel like was your most pivotal educational moment that prepared you for that time. First of all, I'm not mastering direct to consumer. Uh, there's we got a team that is killing it, but um, I'm sort of staying out of their way. Uh, the most pivotal time growing up that sort of prepared me for Jenny's is that the question? Yes, whether it was a, a, a sporting experience. I know that you you were you were quite the basketball player, right? Just ask me. Um, uh, so I will say that I. I, I don't I can't get my head around how people in their childhood prepare for positions like CEO. And I don't we don't need to focus on CEO, but any sort of meaningful business leadership. Like what are the things that prep them for the hot seat? And for me, I think of, you know, that ball getting tipped to you to start the basketball game looking up court and there's a guy a hell of a lot quicker than you a hell of a lot bigger stronger faster can jump out of the gym compared to you and now you got to figure out how to get the ball up the court with uh you know a whole bunch of people in the stands hoping you don't like i didn't realize that when i was 10 12 15 18 but like that is a hell of a good way to develop a backbone and some um some level of sort of trust in yourself. And uh, like looking back, I think that that was more formative for me than, um, than I understood at the time. And I'm sort of amazed at people who didn't have experiences like that. You know, like I think of Jenny who d d cares not one iota about sports, never played sports, and yet herself is amazing 
a strong backbone, belief in herself, et cetera. Like, I don't understand where that comes from if you haven't had those life experiences of being in the cauldron and, um, you know, that sort of shapes who you are. So for me, it was, it was on the basketball court, but, but I don't understand how people who didn't have something similar uh, come to be the strong leaders that they are. So obviously I know that you're from Chicago. Uh, tell me about your time there, what school you went to growing up, both grade school, high school, what part of Chicago. Uh, I'm a big fan of the city. It's where, where I met my wife. So um, I know a little bit about it, but uh, I want to hear your perspective. Uh, I grew up at the very end of the Metro line, due south of the city. Uh, in what was then called Park Forest South. Uh, the city rebranded as a university park after I left. I think uh, hoping that people would think it was the University of Chicago area. It's not. The university there is Governor State University, which is a unique junior, senior, and graduate school community college. Uh, I think it's the only one left in existence. My father worked there. Uh, he was there when it was nothing but cornfield uh, and then worked there for 30 years. Um, I grew up in a in a dream world. Um, my my first uh, girlfriend was African-American. My first uh, buddies were African-American. I was in the minority, um, or at least that's how I remember it. As I look at uh, pictures, I don't think that that's actually true. Um, but it was an amazing place to grow up. And then in fifth grade, we moved two stops north on the uh, train so that I could go to a little bit better high school. And um, I was, I, I stood out there, not in a great way. Like I, I was uh, more comfortable in the prior environment. And in high school, I had some great friends, very good friends, but I didn't find my tribe until college. And it's been it's been really cool. I've stayed close with the people that I grew up with until fifth grade. Uh, one of them has gone on to amazing things. He's the president of Uninterrupted. Number one reason why we've created this platform. Um, another is uh, is doing very well in Chicago. A number of them are doing very well in Chicago. Um, and thanks to Facebook and and everything else, it's been I've been able to stay in touch with them, and it's been really cool. Um, so anyway, that. That's where I grew up and um, had a had a wonderful childhood with two loving parents and a car that started most of the time. My dad drove a Pinto that had holes in the uh, side. His best buddy was a guy named uh, Robert Earl Walters. He was the coach of Chicago Carver, and they used to try to play golf at the local municipal course, and Bob Walters would walk out of his house and pretend to put his golf clubs in the holes in the Pinto uh, acting like they were golf club holders. Uh, so, you know, we weren't rich, but, uh, we were, we were doing just fine and it was comfortable. It's beautiful. What brought you to want to pursue political science as a profession early on? Um, I could, I could get easy A's in reading and writing classes and I could study my butt off in the hard sciences and get the, uh, dead middle of, of the bell curve. I have a, a strange brain. I don't recall facts at all. Um, I've learned to deal with that through copious note taking. Um, I, but I can read at a high clip and I, I consider myself a reasonably good writer. And so that was, uh, that was the path of least resistance to me. Um, and going to law school was always sort of the, 
the uh, way out. Uh, you know, the, the family thought if you got a professional degree, you'd always have a roof over your head. And so um, going to law school was sort of always in the background as the likely path. So if I'm clear, did you ever per, did you ever plan to pursue anything with your political science degree uh, outside of law? Was there like an inkling of the pursuit of activism or anything like that that sort of moved you in that direction? Or was it purely a stepping stone to get to that professional degree? Yeah, uh, totally. I was, we didn't call it activism, but I was the geeky 15 year old who would ghost write letters to the editor and try to get my dad and his buddies to sign them. My dad says he lost more friends during that time of my life than any other. Um, and, you know, I, I was, when you're born south of Chicago, you're stamped a Democrat as you come out of the womb. Uh, I haven't shaken that. And, um, I was very interested in Democrat politics. I, I used to listen to the Kennedy speeches on a on a recording um, like that. You know, Robert Kennedy, John Kennedy were um, instrumental in my thinking about the world and uh, speech writing and the like. And I really wanted to be a speech writer and a campaign manager. Uh, and I, I did that uh, some. Uh, I wasn't any good at it. And um, I was very aware that I might run a campaign into the ground and then be out of a job. And so law school started to sound pretty damn good. After law school, did you go straight into law firm work? I did. Um, I, I went straight to Kegler Brown. And it is amazing to me how little I knew about business. My family was not at all entrepreneurial. We didn't, we didn't talk about business, so I didn't understand what that meant. I remember an uncle who tried to get me to study engineering and I thought engineers were people that drove uh, trains. So like I, I was really ill-equipped coming out of law school to be a business lawyer. And I tried to be a trial lawyer. I, I like to think that I'm a good public speaker. I think I'm a good writer. I thought um, that's what looks sexy on TV. I'll be a trial lawyer. I love to tell people that I'm 0-1 in jury trials. And um, part of that was just my brain. Like the the recall of facts heard long ago is not something that my brain does well. And that is a real skill. I see it in my wife that, you know, it's painful when we argue because she remembers all the details that I don't. But but that was not that was going to be a really difficult path for me. And then I was brought into a meeting. Uh, a, an M&A meeting to help on one tiny little section of an 80-page agreement. Right now is a wonderful time to buy a GE 2-in-1 refrigerator food freezer like this one. And I saw all of these smart people sitting around a big table with big numbers at stake, and they were working together to try to find a solution to a difficult problem. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is it. This is fun. These are These are... Um, smart people, but they're, they're sort of collaborating and the numbers are big. Like, this is what I want to do. And, um, and that sort of led me down the path first to labor and employment and then to more uh, broad corporate stuff. But I learned a lot in a short time cause I didn't have any background in it. So you were there for how long? Uh, I think eight years. I was right on the verge of making partner when I left. I they had started to include me in partner meetings, and um, so I think eight years. Tell me about that decision. Uh, I know that you were at General Electric afterwards. Um, making partner at any firm is a big deal, especially the one that you were employed with. 
So it was tough to leave, but it was safe. I knew that they would take me back if I didn't like it. And GE had a heck of a track record. They had the number one rated uh, law firm in the world, according to some magazine. They were at the time the number one, uh, uh, what was it, most admired company in the world, uh, you know, ahead of Apple and lots of companies that, you know, today that seems like long ago and it is, but, but at the time they were it. And uh, they were, they did a heck of a job sort of saying, look, people who come into GE as lawyers and then become general counsel of small P&Ls, uh, some of them go on to be Fortune 500 CEOs. And they had the list and they talked about it and, and they talked about the training and what I would learn. And all of that, not the becoming a Fortune 500 CEO, but all of the promises they were making about what I would learn and what I would do came true. And it felt like too amazing an experience to pass up. I, I didn't know at that time that that meant I would move five times in five years. I didn't appreciate just how much the world was about to change in, in the uh, uh, financial crisis and what that would mean for my day-to-day. -day. What year is this? Um, I think I joined in 2006, maybe. Oof. And you know, it was, it was a fast paced, high stress, awesome, high potential environment or like everybody around was high potential, fantastic. Um, but when the world got turned upside down, uh, mine did as well. And I got to do deals. I had no business getting to do. Um, I had an amazing time. I was in Manhattan for three weeks, including weekends, but that is tough on a young marriage. It's tough on a you know, we just had our second child or my wife was pregnant with our second child when they called me in New York while we lived in Florida and said, we need you to move back to Cincinnati. And, you know, that is a, that is a phone call that nobody uh, wants to make. We had just shaken my wife out of her first great job. She had landed a second one in Florida and now we were about to shake her out of that. Um, so the, the personal side of GE was tough, but the professional learning and speed and pace was amazing. And if anybody can do that early in their career, have that sort of excitement, I would totally recommend it. I think trying to be a husband and a father later in life was really scaring me and opening me up to the idea of leaving. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. 2008 was quite the crucible for anyone that was professional. Can you think of any moments in your time at GE where the, the macroeconomic effects of that era, the recession, altered your career? Was there, was there a lack of bodies that put you in a position to do things that maybe you wouldn't have done? Is Was there a new prerogative that allowed you to try new things. I, I thought that's what I heard, but I might, I might've been wrong. No, totally. Uh, when Lehman Brothers fell, the commercial paper market seized up and all of a sudden GE was rolling $80 million of commercial paper a day. They had been doing that for years. It wasn't a big deal, but when that market seized up, GE had to come up with $80 million of cash every day. That, um, uh, has come out publicly since, but we were tasked with selling uh, assets quickly. And my best friend at the time at GE was this 
absolute wizard finance young uh, kid. He was 26. And he and I were sent off to go sell some things. And luckily for both of us, particularly for my career, we closed deals two quarters in a row within hours of the quarter cutoff. Imelt was getting text messages telling them about letting him know where the deal was. That's Jeffrey, correct? Yes. And I was not, um, I had no business doing that sort of deal, that size, that scope, but because of the time I got to. And for me, that really cemented my life outside of the law. I, I um, knew that business leadership is what I wanted to do and that I could fake it as a good lawyer, but that maybe um, in business leadership, I might be better. $80 million a day. So I just want to make sure that I'm hearing this correctly. GE had to come up with over $2 billion a month. Yeah, it didn't last that long, but yes. Okay. I mean, you know, remember, uh, Warren Buffett got a heck of a deal uh, for several billion dollars uh, because of that. And the numbers at GE are always off the chart, right? Like we had to add a Nike business every year to keep up with our growth plans. And, you know, my first general counsel job was a $500 million business, which in GE terms was this tiny little training ground for future leaders. And after that, I went to a uh, $14 billion P&L. And after that, to this tiny little quote unquote startup that included a JV with Honda. Like it was the scale of what you do at GE is just off the charts compared to real world. And so, um, yes, we had to come up with $80 million a day in cash. And they did. Like they they kept the company afloat. Uh, but it was, it was a, a unique time in history. So I'm starting to see the transition between your pursuit of corporate law and your desire to be a business leader. Obviously, uh, that time at GE was unforeseen. At least that era of of doing business at GE was unforeseen. Um, you you came to a head around 2008 2009. Tell me about the decision to a uh, help Ginny's early on and. And, and B, to eventually make the decision to, to, to jump ship and uh, take your chances as an ice cream maker. Well, Jenny and her husband, Charlie, were just great friends of mine back when I helped them. And, you know, we tell the story that I did it for a pint of ice cream and a beer. And, uh, you know, they were just friends and I happened to be a lawyer. And so I could file the paperwork for them. Um, and none of us dreamed that it would lead to something that I might come back and work for. Like that just wasn't even a consideration. What, uh, what happened in the meantime, I go off to GE, learn a lot and they grow their business. They start um, shipping to consumers before anyone had heard the phrase D to C. They set up a website on a company called Yahoo and uh, figured out how to put ice cream in fishing coolers with dry ice the idea being that when people came to the Columbus Convention Center from out of town and fell in love, they might go back and order and they could ship it to them. What they didn't plan on was the fact that that enabled the New York Times and Food and Wine to begin writing about this amazing woman in Columbus, and Ohio. And people would drive in from the surrounding states. Bring to in get an it. artist's focus on creativity and a chef's focus on quality to something that had always been a commodity product. And that 
that path that set the company on a different path. They were four years in at that point. It was 2006. And then they opened up, you know, their third and fourth store. They called me in January of 2009 when they had four stores and said, come back to Columbus and be our CEO. Were they all in Ohio? They were all in Columbus. They were all within about three miles of each other. And, you know, when they, when they called, I, I said something like, I'm flattered. I, I love you guys. Um, can you pay me? You know, like, like this career is kind of working out. Like I don't, and, and they essentially said like, look, we've created something fantastic. We've got a cult following, but you know us, we're kind of artists. You got to help us, uh, help us grow this, help us figure this out. And it sounded so wholesome and phenomenal. And, you know, I put Jenny on the shortest list of generational talents. I truly believed it was the world's greatest ice cream. And I thought from there, we ought to be able to build something, but I needed to understand the financials. And, and you know, I spent six months trying to figure out what the opportunity was and whether our values were aligned. And I would sneak out of GE at three o'clock and drive to Columbus and spend three hours with them and then drive back to Cincinnati. And, you know, it was a, it was, it felt incredibly risky. My wife, uh, you know, my wife is sort of type A hardcore. She, she sort of said like, I love Charlie and Jenny. Let's, let's put that aside for a minute. Uh, you know, essentially I didn't follow your ass around so you could go run a four shop ice cream company. And, and I said, you know, I, I think this, I think this could be something special. And, and then I said, like, we'll buy a house in Columbus, Ohio, and we won't move again for 20 years. And she was like, I'm in. And I'm going back to my firm. I was like, great. And um, and that was, you know, the, I think we can build this at least big enough to be safe and have a company that will allow us all to pay our mortgages. And there's some potential that we can do something even bigger, but we're, you know, I'm not too crazy to say we can go compete with Ben and Jerry's, but I think this is the world's greatest ice cream. I think we should be able to build a wholesale business. I think we can open up more stores and we got a lot to learn and none of it's guaranteed, but like, I think we got a shot here. And I, I believed in Jenny in a way that allowed me to take that risk uh, that, you know, there are very few people in the world who could have called me at that point and, and talked me into leaving GE for, for a company that, you know, was as tiny as it was. Four stores. This is 2009. Today, tell me the scale of the business. Um, I think we've got 38 stores now. We just soft opened one in Buckhead in Atlanta yesterday. Um, you know, we're, we're above 50 million in revenue. We'll, we'll probably uh, double that again in the next year. I think we've got some big growth plans in terms of our scoop shops. We've, we finally got absolutely the right team. The quality of the ice cream is better than it's ever been. And, you know, we've got some brains around the table that are just so darn fun to be around. Um, you know, I think, I think I've probably said to you, like, I think of myself as a basketball coach. I've got my Michael Jordan or my LeBron James making no judgment call there. Although I did grow up <laughs> South of Chicago in the nineties. So I might have a favorite, but fair enough. They're both really good. And my job is to, you know, get the pieces around Michael Jordan or LeBron James and um, my leadership style, probably a lot like Phil Jackson's like I, I want to lead 
And I know I can only lead as far as I uh, have my star's back or my back, my star has my back. And so it is a complicated dance of um, her name's on the door. It's her creativity and drive that has created this amazing thing and drives it daily. And yet I'm my title CEO and I'm on the hook for a whole lot. And so she and I working together is a lot like a superstar and a basketball coach. But back to the, like the pieces around the, the table, we have brought in superstars and, you know, I, I believe in sort of everybody having a superhero power or two. And I think that I am pretty good, I think because of my mother, at sort of identifying people's superhero power and playing to that strength. I got accolades at GE for sort of being good at assessing talent and getting it in the right spot. And I think if there's something that I would claim to be good at, it's probably that. And I think right now our team is just spectacular. I think we've got a world-class leader in every important seat and a team below them of high pots that I'd put up against anybody. And so, you know, doubling the size of this business in the next 12 or 18 months feels entirely uh, doable and exciting. And I would bet on us over any other team. <clears throat> so let's go back to a few themes that you discussed earlier on, earlier on, excuse me. Um, you made the analogy of facing the bigger, uh, more physical, perhaps more talented basketball player and trying to get up the court. Per Deal perhaps <laughs> dealing with the pressures, <laughs> dealing with the pressures of let's, let's call it a full court press. Um, you've obviously, uh, succeeded there. Uh, you've, you've overcome quite a few pressures. Uh, you've made a few transitions that have been notable. I wish more people knew about those transitions. Um, let's talk about how you found the desire to learn what you didn't yet know before you showed up as CEO. So you were a tremendous writer, uh, public speaker. Um, you are a voracious reader. CEO is also about the numbers. So let's talk about how your time driving sales for GE or acquiring assets or selling assets to, to drive those sales for GE influenced uh, your decision to become sort of a a quant, if you have, if you if you want to call it that, I I don't want to call call it that. I don't I don't think that that's appropriate for me. But I but my learning was, you know, sitting at the right hand of people that were great at it, and so being the attorney to a great CEO and working alongside the great marketing leader or the great CFO, uh, you can learn a heck of a lot. And they weren't all great. I also learned a few things that I did not want to emulate in my leadership style, but a number were phenomenal. John Deneen was leading the GE transportation business at the time. Forbes or Fortune called him the number one CEO prospect in the world. Um, and he was a CEO at the time, but with it, you know, it, it merely a $14 billion P&L at at GE Transportation, making locomotives in Erie, Pennsylvania. And he had an incredible impact on me in very few touches. He stormed into my office one time and said, John, you got to help us move employees. Uh, you you got to help us move work to Poland. 
And I kind of looked at him like, we have people in Poland, you know, like I had no idea I was new. And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, I just came back from Poland and uh, I walked into this room of engineers. It was all, um, you know, glass walls. They were writing on the walls. They were arguing. And I walked in and they sort of glanced at me and then they kept arguing and could care less that I was standing there. And he said, we need more of that. He's like, they're, they're working like their hair is on fire. And I sort of stared back at him and he said, they know that if they do an amazing job, that we will move more work to Poland and Poland will improve and their families will improve and people will have jobs. And John, we, we can't find that level of engagement anywhere else in the world. We've got to get more work to Poland. And that level of engagement, that hair on fire mentality that he saw and wanted to uh, get the most of and and benefit from, uh, you know, was one of the ways that he sort of made a lasting impression on me. And it, I've I've come to care about engagement more than brains and background. And you know, you can call it hustle or tenacity or whatever, but like. Um, I, I learned a lot in a short time from a few great leaders at GE. I know that you're a pretty unique individual. I want to know more about uh, what your strengths and weaknesses are and how you've applied that to leadership of, of the brand. Sure. My mind is interesting. I, I have a near photographic memory for faces. I almost never remember a name. I'm okay with numbers, but I cannot remember them after seeing them written down. On the other hand, I'm, I'm quick to grasp mathematical concepts. Um, I'm probably more funny and a better storyteller than the average Joe. I'm funny because I'm not particularly good looking and I like to date smart, beautiful uh, women. Uh, so I discovered early on that I was going to need to make them laugh if it was going to uh, have a shot at uh, d dating the women I found interesting. For me, I would say I'm linear rational, fair. I love a respectful, open, honest debate. I despise being bullshitted. Uh, it takes some people who work for me longer than it should to understand um, that I'm onto their BS way before they realize it. Um, I refer to it as an assault on my intelligence, that they think that they are snowing me is amazing and ridiculous. And often I think for some people, it takes them a couple of years to realize that they can be open and honest with me, particularly when the news is bad and I'll have their back. I'll rally to their cause. I'll help them any way I can. But if they BS me, uh, you know, that South of Chicago chip on my shoulder comes out. I don't know if it's because dad took me to bars in his hometown uh, to play poker and shoot pool that I uh, have a high BS meter, but like, that, like my brain functions in that way, uh, well, but you know, I can't, I can't remember, um, our gross margin, uh, 15 minutes after my CFO tells me what it is. Do you think that there is another CEO that could have done what you've done at Jenny's? Absolutely. Okay. Well, let me, let me refrain from letting you slide there because <laughs> I disagree. Here's why. You come from a very unique place at a very unique time with a very unique background. I would argue that without Michael Jordan in the triangle offense and Phil Jackson and Scottie Pippen as reference points for how to deal with 
a bigger than life founder, there aren't very many people that can do that. Responsible for nine of the last 15 NBA championships, Phil Jackson and the triangle offense have quickly become the words of legend in basketball history. And I think that your analogy about Phil Jackson was was spot on. I don't think I had ever thought about it that way, but that's obviously an education, though maybe it's a little bit casual. It's still an education that deeply affected how you pursued this this very difficult, not difficult, but it's a unique relationship. That's right. It it is. And and you know, Jenny and I are different in a thousand ways. And she is truly a special brain. Um, but the the ways we're similar are that we're both highly competitive. And we both don't want to wake up when we're 65 feeling like we missed the pitch. And um you know uh, I think it is important for me to note that Michael Jordan would have won some championships without Phil Jackson. And and I'm a, so I mean it when I say that um it didn't have to be me. The important point was their recognition that they needed to bring in somebody else to help them grow. And and there were there could have been a number of right answers. Now, you're smiling at me questioning that and I'll say that I think that LeBron would have won more had he had Phil Jackson. And um I don't have any idea what um what level of help I have been. I like to think it's decent, but I don't spend any time worrying about it because we are having success. We are, we have built something bigger than ourselves. If she or I took off for six months, uh, this place would still hum. Uh, uh, she better not, but you know, I don't want to, I don't want to test that, but, um, but you know, we now have in place, uh, something that's special and big and, uh, and we've done it as a group. And that's really cool. It's maybe the most rewarding thing there is other than being a parent. And, uh, and we get to, you know, celebrate that and enjoy that on the daily. Uh, I won't go too much into it. I know some things are delicate, but can we talk about the funnel, the sales funnel of Ginny's ice creams? Do, do you guys spend on advertising? What does that look like by advertising? I mean, performance marketing, um, if, if, if you can go into the details between the, um, I guess, the breakdown of direct-to-consumer sales, if there's an estimate versus your in-store sales versus your wholesale partnerships, uh, what does that look like and how do you balance those things? I think there, there aren't very many, very many businesses that are doing that well right now. How is how is Jenny's leading from the front? First of all, you know, we are a three-legged stool. We have our scoop shops, we have our wholesale business, and our direct-to-consumer. The direct-to-consumer is uh, largely a gifting business. Um, we want people to be able to access a wider range of flavors there than they can get in their seven or fourteen at the local grocery store, and it's a high price point. And so. Um, it makes an amazing gift. It is, it is great for an office party. It is a great thank you to clients and that sort of thing. But it is not a, uh, often it is not a order it for yourself at your house. Um, and so that, that's both fantastic and a challenge for us. Um, we are, we are spending on advertising, but not significantly. And a few of the ways we're spending, 
are to tell people when we have gone on the grocery store shelves around them. And I think that our team, um, who you, whom you know, you know, Ryan Morgan from the earliest days, uh, handling our Twitter account back in 2009, uh, you know, has grown, uh, in the role as much as anybody. But, you know, we've got, we've got a group that has figured out how to tell our story in a compelling way quickly at low cost. And, and we're using those same skills to grow the D2C stuff and, and it's working. But, but at the same time, there is a governor on the scale of that business in my mind because of the amount of shipping and packing and dry ice that's required, um, such that, you know, we're not trying to do a single pint, um, at a $20 price point with, with, uh, everything else that needs to be around the ice cream. And so if we could do that, it'd be bigger, but, um, but we feel very good about the, our team's ability to tell stories through, uh, very limited, uh, marketing advertising dollars and build, uh, you know, all legs of the stool. Would you ever consider working with a larger online retail partner? Um, are you speaking of the Amazon? The Amazon. Um, yeah, absolutely. We would consider it. We haven't, uh, we are, um, we enjoy our spot in their ghost stores. We enjoy our relationship with Whole Foods immensely. Um, and we haven't, uh, jumped to selling, uh, through Amazon for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, um, you know, we like to control the brand. Uh, we think that we're particularly good at that. And by we, I mean, not me. And, um, I am not good at controlling it. Um, and so we haven't gone down that path. Doesn't mean we won't in the future, but for now, our experience in our store uh, online is the right way for us to move forward. So all of the experience that you've had over, let's say a 25 year career, probably longer. I'm 46, so you do the math. There you go. <laughs> You're a young looking 46, mm -hmm. John. That's why this is a podcast and not video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll let you choose the hardest moment of your career thus far and all of the influences that you would attribute to you overcoming the hardest issue that you faced as, as a leader, whether or not your spouse helped you through that, whether or not some book that you haven't told me about helped you through that moment, I'll let you decide. Uh, I'm curious to know because I feel like there are few executives of your caliber that have such a breadth of influence, at least that I know of. Um, and I think it's uh, spectacular and unique. Jenny's Ice Creams is a popular spot on Southport and Roscoe, but the doors are closed due to a listerious scare. Two ice cream parlors have closed, products being pulled out of the store freezers, all of this because of concerns that Jenny's Ice Cream could be contaminated with listeria. Jenny's has a very loyal customer base. They even have goat cheese ice cream on the menu, but they won't be serving any of that up anytime soon. You can see a sign on the door right there telling customers they're closed for now. Jenny's has closed 21 stores in seven states coast to coast after agriculture officials in Nebraska discovered listeria in a random sample. So uh, when we faced into our, uh, our recall in 2015, you know, in some ways you're never prepared for it. Um, in other ways, I think, I think we deserve uh, the accolades for how we handled it. 
but it wasn't perfect and we overreacted uh, late in the game in a way that cost us significantly. But, but I will say that, um, you know, there, there's a level of perseverance in us, uh, in Jenny for sure, um, that, that allowed us to just keep battling. And I will admit to that there were probably four nights in that struggle where I was staring at the ceiling in the dining room, pretty damn convinced we were going bankrupt within 48 hours. And bankruptcy would have meant bankruptcy, not just for the company, but for uh, the Bowers and our family personally. And, uh, you know, we had, we had been flying so high in 2014 that to be looking into that was unbelievable. We didn't talk about it at the time, but totally, completely randomly, I was facing into a, uh, we thought I had stage 4B lung cancer at the time. Um, we haven't, we haven't talked much about it, but it turns out, I feel even stupid talking about it. Turns out I, I was completely healthy. I had a fungal infection from bat guano that uh, filled up my lungs and made it look like on PET or PE scans that I had uh, stage 4B lung cancer. But for six weeks of that horrendous time, I thought I was a goner. And um, and this is during the challenge. This is 100% during the challenge. In fact, the day I got the test results uh, at the James, the the uh, doc came running into the to the waiting room where my wife was yelling, it's not cancer, it's not cancer. Um, I was starting chemo the next day. Uh, we thought I had uh, informed the leadership team of it. We had uh, appointed my a replacement because I was going to be in bad shape for some time. It was, it was as like ridiculously a horrible time as one can imagine. And, um, I don't, you know, I, I, I spend, a, I spend my days now trying not to think about this, but like the things that sort of got me through it, um, were a belief that, um, a belief that we still had something special then and the the human love that was coming from customers the nice notes we were getting at one point the president of homage jason block wrote over an, an email to me that said hey i don't know if you see it but your team is absolutely killing it in on social they are dealing with the haters respectfully appropriately telling your story uh, the, like they are absolutely crushing it. And I needed to hear that at the time. It was, it was dark. And for some reason, like I printed out that email and I walked it over to the, to the wall in front of the communications group we had set up overnight. And I slapped it on the wall and sort of shouted out, like, here's a note from Jason Block of homage saying you guys are killing it or whatever. And like it became a, like, all right, we're going to get through this. Like this, this is going to be okay. And they started printing out other nice notes and slapping them on the wall. And then people started doing that at the stores. And like, it, it was a, there's too much love and goodness here for this to crater, but we still couldn't pay our bills. And if, if you're, if you want to be a CEO, try to do it in a business that has no, without, you know, 
500 employees and no revenue for a while. Like it ain't, it's pretty horrible. And we just kept threading the needle, getting backstop loans, uh, pushing off creditors, telling our story, explaining we'd be back, explaining they'd get paid everything. And ultimately, you know, we didn't lay people off, paid 50% to our uh, employees who weren't working in the shops, uh, kept our investors whole and, and threaded the needle. Uh, but at the time, you know, there were, there were at least four times where I was very convinced we weren't going to make it. It actually made me emotional <laughs> because I remember seeing you around that time. And, uh, I was, I still had that high street office and you stopped in one day by chance and, um, you couldn't stay long. But the one thing that you said was when this is all over, I look forward to talking about it. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, um, the irony is, uh, you are in a much better place now. Yeah. Jenny's is a household name, legitimately. The Tyler, the creator collaboration was, was amazing. It really was amazing. Just off the charts. And, you know, it's so fun to say that cause I didn't have a damn thing obviously to do with, uh, making it, coming up with it or making it amazing. And so it's fun to be able to fully brag about Jenny and the team because it was spectacular. The earned media that the company is generating is also off the charts. Uh, I think the last major hit was the Ringer article that went everywhere that highly touted the product and the brand. It's amazing uh, what you've built. Um, I think full circle, it's very clear that You've been through several gauntlets in your early professional life and maybe even in your childhood. The transitions that you've had to make uh, were notable. Um, what am I missing? Like what, what if I left out that would, that would complete this, uh, this story? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, that uh, I was thinking about sort of where that perseverance came from. And partly it was Jenny, partly it was my wife. You know, you you sort of pick who you surround yourself with. Uh, she was from Waite High School in Toledo, the first to go to college. True breakout brain. Father sort of figured that out and would drop her at the library every weekend. And that's why she's involved with the library to this day and capital campaigns and things. And like looking at her thinking like, holy shit, that brilliant woman might be going bankrupt because uh, of of the company that I'm supposed to be in charge of, like, holy crap, that was tough. And, you know, she taught me perseverance in another way too, in that she refused to go out with me. Uh, uh, I can tell you the long or short version, but the short version is she, I, I had to email her every day for 30 days to get her to go on a first date with me. Uh, she, she still didn't agree. She agreed to go out for drinks with me and a buddy. So it wasn't a date. Um, four months and two days after that, we got engaged, which is insane. Of course, like we talk about it, like if one of our boys comes home and says he's marrying a woman he met four months ago, we'll kill him. Right. But, uh, you know, 17 years later, somehow it's worked. Um, and you know, the, the perseverance that our team showed wherever, uh, we got it, wherever that comes from. Uh, I don't know, but, um, but, you know, we've been through a lot and, and we're enjoying the moment now that, 
the, the success we're having. There was one thing that you brought up earlier in the conversation about your, your belief in your role as a coach. It's almost as though if you were to write a book about your time as CEO of this growing company, um, company that by most accounts uh, will be a nine-figure company soon enough, nine figures in revenue. Um, I, I feel like you would have coach in front of your name, like coach low almost. I, I want to understand how you've used that mentality to navigate this space. And I know we've talked about this in short before, but uh, is, that a, is that a careful enough analogy of how you operate? I, I think that it is. Uh, it's entirely possible that uh, Team Jennies would totally disagree with that, but but that's how I think of myself. And and part of that's because I don't have deep domain expertise about damn near anything, right? Like, I I was a I was a player for the first five years of the business where I was having to learn Facebook ads and. Uh, ice cream making and things, not that I was actually making the ice cream, but I had to learn a whole bunch of that stuff. But that's probably not me at my best. And um, I am probably a reasonably quick study on lots of different things. And I, and I, I do think that I'm good at finding talent. And so being the coach is probably the right way uh, for me to think about myself and my leadership style. And, and I'll be honest, like all that is, and I, I love coaching my kids basketball and my wife knows that if we won the lottery, I, I want to be a seventh grade basketball coach. Um, like all that is, is me throwing positive energy and confidence at people and trying to get them to be their best. And that's me trying to emulate my dad who coached every basketball team I was on until middle school. And and it it is a it is a genuine just like they've got to be in the right headspace they've got to feel confident about what they're going to do it's got to be fun um and that in a lot of ways is coaching and um i learned from some great ones and when i'm being a great ceo that's all i'm doing is is you know emulating that sort of style so john i in some ways, you've coached me through my, my first podcast with uh, 2PM's Polymathic. I have a, a slate of great uh, guests that are going to be coming on board, and you're obviously uh, my early favorite. Um, well, that's very kind, but I have to, um, I have to request. The, the world needs to know more about you, and you are, you're building something great. I said yes to you when I've said no to every other podcast because I admire you. I, but I also like, I feel like you're a little bit of an enigma and I, I want to know a lot more about you. And so here is my request. You do uh, eight or nine more of these. They'll be great. I have no doubt. We'll all enjoy listening to them. And then on your 10th, I'm coming back and I'm asking you the questions. And I'm gonna use that those you know shitty trial lawyer skills that I uh, never quite had and uh, interrogate you so I can understand uh, how this uh, big good looking dude uh, who's always the best dressed in the room uh, created something uh, so cool and special and bounced around and learned a lot 
and I think everybody will uh, benefit from that. So if if you will indulge us, I'm coming back for number 10. You have yourself a deal, John. 